Hello! Welcome to the very, very first episode of Sharpest Knives. My name is Mira Santolin, and I'm the creator, editor, producer, interviewer, etc. of the Sharpest Knives podcast. I've been working on this podcast project for a little over six months, and I'm very excited you're here with me. In this first episode, I sit down with Dustin Addington, and when we recorded a few months ago, he was a program manager at Humanities Washington, and since then, he has been promoted to director of programs, so congrats, Dustin! We talked about the Humanities Washington programs he manages, the Think and Drinks and Speakers Bureau, and we covered a lot of different things related to Dustin's work, including talking to kids about philosophy how to run a panel of smart people held in a bar and make it into a community discussion. And uh, Sasquatch comes up one time. Just once, though. So, I'm so happy you're here. And here's Dustin. We're here. <laughs> Welcome to Sharpest Knives. I'm Maris Antolin, and my guest today is Dustin Addington. He is a program director at Humanities Washington, and he leads the Think and Drink and Speakers Bureau programs. And he's also working on his PhD dissertation. Yep. Okay. Yep. In philosophy. Then <laughs> <laughs> you try to have the language right. <laughs> And he's also the co-host of a philosophy podcast called No Narrow Thing with Whitney Johnson. Dustin, welcome to my show. <laughs> it's a delight to be here. Thank you for having me. Is there anything that, that um, because this bio, I pulled it off the Humanities Washington website. Yeah. So I'm wondering what's missing or what, I guess, other ways you would define yourself in your career or anything any personal details that are left out? Oh, yeah. So I would say the only thing is my work with philosophy for children. Mm -hmm. uh, I was a volunteer instructor and then a paid instructor uh, for the Center for Philosophy for Children at the University of Washington uh, starting in like 2013 or something like that. And I've done it recently as well. Um, and that was my first sort of introduction to philosophy outside of college campuses mm -hmm. and that was really important to me to see the value of getting philosophy out there and introducing to it to children for the very first time and them yeah. getting really excited at <laughs> examining these questions and having fun with thought experiments and yeah. having a totally different conversation from what they normally do in their social studies class or English class or whatever um, so that was a really important step for me that I think led me down the path I am going down now, which is mm -hmm. sort of nonprofit work and public humanities work. Mm -hmm. What kind of questions do you ask kids? Yeah, about philosophy. Uh, they're, they seem to be the easiest questions to start with are ethical ones. What should you do? Because they're mm -hmm. kind of primed for that. Thinking about uh, rules and kindness and other virtues that get, get instilled in them by their teachers and parents. Um, so you can ask them, give them a particular case and ask them what they should do, what another person should do. Mm -hmm. um, but you can ask them even bigger questions. You can talk about uh, God. You can talk about mm -hmm. politics. Uh, you can talk about questions of knowledge, like 
Um, how do you know you're not dreaming right now? Those big oh, gosh. classical <laughs> philosophy questions. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, really, they can handle it. And, yeah. and if you frame questions the right way, they'll give you the responses that genius philosophers came up with as well. They're different. Right. set up properly the discussions will be really rewarding that's so interesting i yeah. love that yeah what was your favorite response you ever got from a kid uh we presented the trolley problem to them oh, right? okay. the classic trolley problem uh there's two tracks a trolley is coming down uh, and it's going to go on one of the tracks on one side five people tied down on the other side one person tied down uh, and it's heading toward the five people. Do you pull the switch to make the trolley go and hit the single person? So you mm -hmm. are uh, really making a decision here about what's going to happen. One versus five. Yeah. Uh, and one kid told me that he would just get a grenade, blow up the track, <laughs> and derail the train. Oh. And save everybody. Easy. Unless you're on the train, I guess. But yeah. didn't get that far. <laughs> That's really funny. He just refused to participate. Yes, just yeah. rejected the question <laughs> yeah. and treated it like a D&D &D game. No, instead. yeah, I'd rather do this instead. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's really funny. Okay, so you said that that's like the first time that work with philosophy for children really connects with what your work is doing now, which mm -hmm. is community building through discussions. Um, anything else specific to philosophy that connects with what you're doing at Humanities Washington? Yeah, I take philosophy to be enga the engagement of questions in this really meaningful way. Mm. I think philosophy gives you the tools to ask very difficult questions and also presents you with the best theories out there in terms of answers to those questions. Um, and the first step when you're doing philosophy is to ask yourself what you think about a question. Um, but it really doesn't stop there. The second part is more important where you're actually engaging with other people, either directly by having conversations or more abstractly by reading books and mm -hmm. um, going to conferences and things like that. But it's that one-on-one -on -one conversation or group conversation that makes philosophy exciting and worthwhile and can actually change people's minds. If you read the Platonic Dialogues, where Socrates is the main character, the big hero of philosophy, he's going around and chatting with people. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the core of philosophical engagement. So academic philosophy doesn't always prize that. It often prizes yeah. the written word, uh, journals, conference, uh, giving speeches, that sort of thing at conferences. So I really was looking for something that allowed philosophy to happen live um, whether that's through conversation or uh, a natural conversation or a planned discussion. Mm -hmm. um, and the podcast was the No Narrow Thing podcast we do. Um, me and my co-host, Whitney Johnson, was a kind of first stab at that. Of Can we show what philosophy looks like? She's a non-philosopher, mm -hmm. I've been trained in philosophy. Um, can we show what philosophical discovery looks like where you start at one position and you end up in another? Mm -hmm. um, and I think the humanities work with Humanities Washington does a similar thing. Um, we have these think and drinks, which are panel discussions of experts at bars that, uh, that also involves the audience through questions and discussion, mm -hmm. with various kinds of conversation. Um, that model of taking a lively, important, even controversial question and bringing it outside of the campus, outside of a classroom, and getting people to 
uh, discuss it with experts and with their uh, neighbors, I think is really important. Um, mm. And what I'm most attracted to about my work uh, is that kind of social engagement while confronting really hard questions. Um, so I, I kind of see that as the through line. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about, well, you said what the think and drink is. Yeah. Or what those are. And those are, to clarify, around the state, not only in Seattle. Exactly. Yeah. We're, we are having 14 across the state this season mm -hmm. uh, in five cities. And how long is a season? Uh, three or four months. Okay. Yeah, the season okay. started in late September. Okay, yeah. cool. Yeah. What's the difference? What's the Speakers Bureau program? Yeah, so our Speakers Bureau program, uh, we bring together a collection of about 30 to 35 academics or other kinds of experts, sometimes artists or journalists, mm -hmm. um, but mostly uh, professors who have a really interesting take or story or analysis of a question. We're turning over our roster right now, so mm -hmm. we just got 35 new speakers who will travel Washington for the next two years. Oh, wow. uh, we typically have around 325 Speakers Bureau events per year. Um, okay, wow. Yeah, so we have events all over. Yeah. Uh, we try to hit every single county. Uh, I think we just got our 39th county out of 39 counties in Washington. Oh, dang. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, so that's really exciting. Um, so yeah, this is our program that hits the most number of people. I think mm -hmm. 30,000 people per year go to our Speakers Bureau programs. Mm -hmm. um, so we uh, take in applications from speakers. We thoroughly vet them both for academic rigor, but also for their ability to lead a conversation that will stick with people. That isn't right. going to just bore people and be another academic lecture. Like these right. have to be special. Um, we get a ton of applications. We really narrow it down through, um, live auditions, which is not a common feature in the academic world. Mm -hmm. um, so we really take that audience engagement aspect seriously. Uh, so we just have our brand new batch of 30 or so speakers. They're really cool um, on everything from fake news and misinformation to um, climate change and salmon mm -hmm. in Washington State mm -hmm. to uh, these amazing stories of feminist icons in Washington State uh, whose stories have really been undertold. So a really oh, wide awesome. spectrum yeah. uh, of things, and we're really proud of that program. Yeah, that's really great. Yeah. Who's your favorite upcoming? Do you, Can you name all of them? Ooh, the I don't know head? if I should say, actually. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. I will say when I think of an exciting speaker that comes to mind, uh, Tessa Holes is someone who is going to be in our speaker's bureau, who's really mm -hmm. cool. Um, she's an artist and sort of like a self-made researcher or historian. She collects okay. the stories of these amazing women in Washington's history uh, and also illustrates uh, images to go along with her presentation. Oh, okay. She's really cool, just herself as a person. She's yeah. like, uh, she's gonna spend like the next few months in a cabin in like Montana or something by <laughs> oh herself gosh. in perfect isolation. Uh, so her talk's gonna be really cool. Yeah, and already is in high demand. So, so sh the way that she collects their stories is through interviews, or like, are they all living, or some are dead? Most or? are dead. They're yeah. historic women. Some are pioneers. Some mm -hmm. one was, I believe, a strong woman in like a carnival, oh and she had gosh. a really fascinating life. Yeah, uh, and she just weaves these stories and themes together, both through a really 
beautiful uh, discussion, but mm-hmm. also these amazing hand-drawn images that go that really tie everything together. Oh, that sounds like a really beautiful project. It's it's yeah. incredible. It yeah. was our first audition and it just like set the level so high yeah. in, in this uh, series. I bet those auditions are really fun too. Are, like yeah. almost like the moth, but yeah. your personal moth that you set up. Yeah. yeah. Our oh, over-repeated joke at Humanities Washington is it's Humanities American Idol. Yeah. So it's like several in a row. It's yeah. like five to eight days of just lecture oh, and feedback. Wow. And yeah, it's a pretty intense process, but it, you get to hear a lot of cool stuff in a short yeah. amount of time. Yeah, that is cool. And then, so for the travel portion, are you personally traveling with those speakers? Are you not with the speakers? No, 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 not with the speakers. They handle their own. Okay, Uh, that would be a lot of work. That would be impossible. I would say. Yeah. I mean, on any given day, we might have five speakers bureau presentations at different corners of the state. Yeah. Um, Think and drink. I am traveling all around. So I've been in Spokane, Yakima, Tri Cities. Um, I'll be in Spokane tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, on Monday, I'll be in Tacoma. I'm just going all over for that series. Yeah, that's yeah. so fun, though. It is. Some some of which I'm moderating and leading the discussion. Others, okay. I'm just sort of like stage manager, making sure that microphones work and that sort of thing. Gotcha. Yeah. How do you gauge how in, how engaged you should be in each discussion? Like Ooh, how to that's think a, and drink. That's a great question. Um, sometimes we have really good. Uh, moderators we, we use frequently in a particular city mm-hmm. um, and we try to bring them in and get some new voices and not just have it a humanities Washington event right. uh, but sometimes they're busy or sometimes it's a topic I just really want to take over <laughs> <Yeah>. like um, <laughs> the misinformation topic we've mm-hmm. done recently on um, fake news and misinformation in the journalism landscape Uh, is something that's really important to me. It's something I've studied for a long time in the vein of conspiracy theories and Mm -hmm. how bias affects our beliefs. So that I really um, took program director privilege and really injected myself into (laughs) uh, the conversation as a moderator. Uh, But we're really lucky to have an existing network of people who are great at leading conversations. That's really cool that you have that around the state, too, because it makes it more... Like you said, it's less of Humanities Washington coming in and doing these events. It is a community event that people who are local to that place participate in, or like people who are well-known in that place participate in and draw people who might otherwise have gone. Exactly. We try to get local journalists or media personalities who are good at leading conversations. Most of the academics we choose are from colleges near that town. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, we try to make it as much a community event as possible. Often we'll have some sort of community partner who works with us there. In Tri-Cities, for example, we work with Columbia Basin College. Um, In Tacoma, we work with uh, Broadway Arts. Oh, it's now Broadway Arts Center just changed their name to Tacoma Events something. Okay. (laughs) Well, whatever. Tacoma Events something. (laughs) Feel free to cut that out as well. Like, it, like right three days in. ago, they changed yeah. their name. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's really recently. Yes, like, okay. <laughs> we got the email a couple days ago. Okay. Um, and so both of those events, the Think and Drinks and the Speakers Bureaus, are free? Oh, yes. Is that right? Okay. Yes. Uh, every single one of them. In fact, a precondition for applying to host a Speakers Bureau event is that there will be no cost of admission. Mm-hmm. Um, we've had... Probably total, including Speakers Bureau, Think and Drinks, and our other programs, 
probably had close to 400 events this year, mm-hmm. um, and only two of them had any kind of entry ticket whatsoever. Okay. okay. Yeah. And so Humanities Washington covers whatever venue yes, cost exactly. in order we, to make that happen. We try to find venue partners who can offer us sort of a nonprofit deal mm-hmm. or otherwise provide it for free um, to keep those costs low for that exact reason. Yeah, that's awesome. So money is often a barrier right. for people coming to events. When you eliminate that, what other barriers do you see like crop up? Because there are still things that prevent people from going to things. Absolutely. I mean, one is simply outreach that... Mm-hmm. Um, we have a limited budget in terms of the publicity we can do and who we can contact and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. So just making sure that the right people, that a diversity of people know about what's happening is a huge challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, because not everyone reads the same newspaper or goes to the same website or is right. on our newsletter. Um, so that's a big obstacle is just getting the word out. Mm-hmm. Um but one issue that plagues Seattle in particular is not one I expected before coming into the into this work, which is traffic. And oh, the yeah. layout of the city mm-hmm. is a huge barrier to getting mm-hmm. people to come to our events. We've typically had events uh, in the Greenwood neighborhood of the city at a place called Naked City Brewery, which is a really great venue, and, and they're a really great partner. But we're told repeatedly that people in the southern part of the city just can't justify the 45 minute drive or right. hour and a half bus ride up there right because um, it goes through the most traffic centers of our city uh it's a really inconsistent commute you don't know how long it's going to take you totally. and it's just a real pain at like you know 6 30 p.m to try to get to the north of the city yeah. so that's huge and, and so now we're trying to have our events at different spaces in the city and try mm-hmm. to reach as many people as possible so it's convenient for them right um and, you know, Seattle has an unfortunate uh, history of redlining and other um, segregation by geography uh, or of race through our geography and zoning and that sort of thing. Yeah. So keeping your events all in one place will really limit the sort of the, the people who will be able to come to your events. Totally. And also things like, oh, I don't want to go to a place called Naked City Brewery. Yes, right. <laughs> <laughs> that too. That isn't yeah. brought up as well. Yeah. But, I, mean, I mean, that actually brings up another issue, which is the humanities doesn't have a great track record of bringing in all sorts of people right. into the tent. Uh, it's typically very privileged white older people who have the luxury of being interested in poetry or English or philosophy or history. Mm-hmm. Those tend to be seen as the luxuries of a rich society. Right. Um, and so I think in the next, I mean, this decade and beyond, our big challenge, is, our big challenge and opportunity is expanding that circle mm-hmm. um, and making the humanities relevant to more people and accessible to more people. Yeah. So when you're selecting people to speak at your Think and Drinks and at your Speakers Bureau events, are you is that something you're taking into consideration? Is racial equity and gender equity and social equity in the projects that are presented um, thought through when you're ta- when you're looking for people? Yeah, exactly. That's been yeah. uh, historically really important to Humanities Washington, mm-hmm. and we're really making a proactive stance about that now, yeah. uh, in particular. Um, both in terms of 
making sure that I'm not just picking topics that I in particular in particular think are interesting, right? But thinking who's being left out in this question, or mm. is is this question framed in such a way that it's only interesting to um, white academics or um, you know, techie bros in Seattle yeah. <laughs> who, who have enough time and money to come to these sorts of things. Right. Um, we really have to be thoughtful about speaking from, um, or at least considering a variety of perspectives and histories and interests. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's something we, we take really seriously. Yeah, that's great. Who has been your favorite past speaker mm-hmm. at either the Think and Drinks or um, the Speakers Bureau? It's a great question. Uh, a couple come to mind. One is a, a panel that we just had on misinformation and, and fake news and mm-hmm. conspiracy theories. This had Jevin West from UW, who was one of the co-founders of that Calling Bullshit class. Okay. Where they got kind of national recognition for teaching their students how to deal with um, the cascading misinformation environment, especially around data. So that was really cool. Uh, we also had Kate Starbird, who's also from UW, and she, she researches and teaches on how uh, misinformation spreads online after a disaster like Ooh. a school shooting or mm-hmm. an earthquake, mm-hmm. like the, ki- the kinds of fake images, uh, fake headlines, um, organized bots on Twitter and that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, where the news, where the fakery comes from and how it spreads. So she's a really cool researcher. Um, but we also had, and this is huge for me personally, um, we got the founder of Snopes, David Mickelson, on that panel. Oh, that's Snopes, cool. Yeah, Snopes is that... A sort of fact-checking website that's been around forever. Yeah. I remember reading it when I was like twelve at the on the school <laughs> computer, like this big clunky PC in the yeah. counselor's <laughs> office, looking up things about Bigfoot and the Loch, uh, Loch Ness monster, yeah. and things like that. Uh, and now it's like you know, is is Trump uh, or was is Hillary engaged in a pedophile pizza ring or something? Ring? Pizza yeah. Gate, yeah. Pizza, yeah, it's become a little <laughs> less fun and a little more high stakes. Yeah, um, but that was a really cool moment for me. I got a Snopes hat, so that was a really oh, yes, yeah, swag. Great. <laughs> That's very important. Um, but a few months ago, we also had Alexis Harris um, from UW, uh, and she was speaking on uh, Black American progress since 1968. That mm. was the you know 30 uh, or 40 year anniversary. Wait, how long ago has it been? <laughs> Let me do this math. <laughs> yeah, math real quick. 50 years. 50 years since yeah. 1968. Yeah, uh, and she spoke really uh, on a variety of issues, but she was so passionate and really heightened the com- or raised the level of the conversation to where it wasn't just an mm-hmm. introductory panel on equity issues, mm-hmm. but it really made the audience confront, um, I don't want to just say their privilege, but also their entire way of asking the question. Um, oh, awesome. She was really cool. I hope yeah. we can have her for more Think and Drinks. Just completely reframing perspective on how yeah. you talk about equity. Yeah, and she, yeah. she there are a lot of challenging questions, yeah. and she dealt with each one so deftly and but didn't like back down either. It was mm-hmm. sort of like it wasn't confrontational, but it was direct and sincere, but also extremely well argued. And it was just yeah. a great combination of uh, exactly what a public intellectual should be doing. Yeah, it sounds like uh, she's very authentic. Yes, right. In what she was talking about, not oh. like she was putting up a wall between her and the audience. Yeah, which yeah. is something I think academics struggle with because mm-hmm. you have your professional character. 
Right. I have my footnotes and my bibliography, and I can right. uh, let me argue this, and it's about the question. Yeah. But that doesn't that's not interesting to an audience, right? Mm -hmm. That's just a text. Right. Uh, I think in as much as the public humanities is public, we want a public personality. We want to see you and what you think of the question and how you deal with it. Right. Um, and that's uncomfortable, I think, for a lot of academics. Yeah. But important. People, yeah. <laughs> People who commonly sit in offices with their books and their mm -hmm. computers. And then, I mean, like you were saying, people like a big barrier in academia is, people don't really interact with other academics in their field unless they're at a conference or unless they're reading a book. Right. It's not, they're not commonly like outside of a classroom setting where they absolutely are the expert. They're not confronted with questions about their work or about the issues that they cover. Yeah. yeah. It's, when they are in a conference setting or through peer review, it's such a formalized environment with mm -hmm. such a specific set of rules. Mm -hmm. To me, at least, this is a very personal view of mine, but to me, at least, that never felt like doing philosophy in particular live. It didn't feel like we're having one of those Socratic conversations. Right. You know? Socrates would be lying on a couch drinking wine and eating, you know, eating grapes or whatever, <laughs> yeah. arguing with somebody about the nature of love. That yeah. feels so different from being, you know, crowded in a some college campus classroom and one person's presenting and then another person raises their hand to ask a question. Yeah. You have ten minutes, all right, move on. Next, is your PowerPoint working? That sort of thing. Like yeah. it's so it's such a to me at least it always felt so abstracted and alienating sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um I think Alexis Harris did the opposite of that when she was yeah. on the Think and Drink panel, which I really appreciated. So making these questions personal while still being rigorous and lively while still being sort of serious and careful. Mm -hmm. I think that's an important balance for public yeah. humanities. Yeah, it sounds like she nailed it. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> Moving on, what is something... Okay, what's the biggest difference between the philosophy community you came from, mm. like what we were just talking about, and um, the communities you interact with during the events is it is it always like the alexis harris or is it like or is it not <laughs> <laughs> not always not yeah. always i mean we're trying to do something difficult which is bring the academic world into the non-academic world mm -hmm. um, and the norms are very different uh as we were just discussing so um i have to i try to prepare our panelists carefully before we go on we usually have a conference call and i have to tell them you know this isn't like a conference this isn't like um, other sort of professional obligations you might have this is supposed to be fun this is supposed to be a conversation at a bar about a question that people care about yeah not a lecture on the nature of y in the context of x or whatever right which yeah. is how academics often feel, where they feel most natural yeah and that's another thing i have to really warn them against is the lecture because mm -hmm. there's three people on stage and a moderator and if one person talks for five minutes it feels like forever yeah that's just, a long time you just watch the other two people sit there and it's like yeah. what a waste could be a back and forth mm -hmm. so the norms are really different in terms of what academics expect versus what the audience needs yeah um but in terms of audiences there's something really fun about these events compared to a conference audience 
which is these people are interested but not experts. Mm -hmm. They're not weighed down by two millennia of literature that they feel yeah. like they have to refer to in balance. <laughs> yeah. Uh, or, or, or refer to... Uh, refer to or bring in or reject or whatever else. So them being able to directly confront these important questions, whether they're philosophical or historical or political, um, for maybe the first time in a serious way, mm -hmm. right? Away from the Thanksgiving table or away from their friends who already all agree with them. But in right. a public setting, some people disagree with you, some don't. There's an expert saying one thing. Maybe that unlocks the mysteries of the universe for you, or maybe <laughs> it sounds totally wrong. Yeah. This is an exciting moment for them. This is a nexus for them where, depending on how their feelings react and their beliefs and their evidence and all this their life might change substantially in terms of how they think about this issue. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's really cool. Yeah. Because, you know, at the end of a conference, most academics haven't probably changed their minds very much. And mm -hmm. I, I don't think your mind being changed is the end-all, be-all criterion for what makes a good conversation. Sure. But the way you, should, the way you think about something should change if it was a meaningful conversation. Mm -hmm. I think that happens all the time. All, all the time at Think and Drinks. Yeah. And our Speakers Bureau events, the same. We yeah. have a wonderful evaluations and notes from um, the people who attended or the like the librarian who hosted mm -hmm. saying this is really impactful for our community. Yeah. Especially if we're providing the only pro the some of the only programming they're getting this year. Yeah. And, and especially right. in small towns, this is like the entirety of their cultural experience. In Seattle, we're so um, oversaturated and so spoiled with how many yeah. things we can go to. Yeah. Uh, it's not like that everywhere. Yeah. Um, and being able to bring that expertise, that, those meaningful moments, those important conversations uh, to places that don't normally get them, I think is one of the best things we can do. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's something you don't always get in, in the world of academia. Yeah, totally. It's very siloed yeah. often. Yeah. 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 Okay, what is an a common incorrect perception about a, what a program manager does? Oh yeah, let's <laughs> see. Well, I, I think it's interesting to see. Oh well, okay. So what the position I'm speaking from is an academic who primarily taught and researched and presented. Mm -hmm. Then I went to the nonprofit world, right. Um, and I still teach every once in a while. I still get to do all the fun academic stuff, but a whole different set of responsibilities. Right. And I think the non-program managing world doesn't quite realize how much legwork any particular event takes to put on. Because it's not just inviting people into a room and then they're there and it's fine. It's, right. <laughs> it's like venue. It's figuring out a million little logistics with the venue. In addition mm -hmm. to finding a venue, mm -hmm. it's finding the right people. It's, and this is the biggest part, getting the word out to the right people who might actually want to go to your thing. Right. It's so much work yeah. to have one <laughs> event. Um, and sometimes we hear about people who want to put on their own think of drinks and that's great. We don't own any copyright over that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but I think they always go into it, not quite understanding the, difficulty of curating the right expert experts to come in framing the question setting up the norms of the room mm -hmm. finding a room publicizing all that stuff yeah uh, there's a lot that goes in 
that no one ever sees. Right. But when it goes wrong, you really feel it at the end. Yeah, I'm sure. Uh, I think that's important. Also, the, the number of relationships between organizations that go into producing a single event, even mm-hmm. if it's hosted by one organization, mm-hmm. there's probably a lot else going on, whether it's the, just the venue or other nonprofits or cultural organizations who help publicize or mm-hmm. offered their help or assistance or um, input even uh, about what's happening. Yeah, or any organizations that any of your panelists work for yes. and then would like to be involved. Exactly. Yeah. There's a lot that goes on. Yeah. It's not as simple as just inviting people and they show up. Yeah. Um, and it's amazing how many checklists you can start making for yourself if you really start <laughs> thinking about each yeah. step. Yeah. Um, so I think that's important to recognize is uh, it's tragic when there's an event put on and only a few people show up because it's yes. like, what, how much work went into that? Yeah. It's not just like an, oh, well. So that's a lot of staff time and money yeah. and publicity. Um, so that that was a a real awakening for me when mm-hmm. I left the world of just you organize a conference and you you ask some uh, academics to show up and they do and it's fine. Right. Uh, this is a little different world. Yeah, especially because you're working with people who aren't academics who aren't in that field. Yeah. Because you absolutely want them there. Because that's how you get the conversations that you're exactly. interested in getting, that you're aiming for. Exactly. Yeah. Managing so many different sets of expectations is really hard. There's the venues, yeah. there's your audiences, there's your participants. Yeah. And getting them all to come together and have something that satisfies all of them uh, and is productive in relation to your goals going in mm-hmm. is hard. Yeah. <laughs> you have to really <laughs> carefully think it through. Yeah. Um, so everyone has a satisfying experience. Yeah. And then to do multiple seasons. Yeah. How many seasons do you do a year? We'll have, uh, I think going for probably two seasons, mm-hmm. one in the spring and one in the fall. Okay. Yeah. Nice. But, the, but Speakers Bureau goes all year. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Yeah. I mean, you said 300 Mm-hmm. Yeah, like events. 350 or yeah, so. Yeah. yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, you mentioned briefly just now, nor- like, room norms or event mm-hmm. norms. Are those the same every time? Like, do you have a Google Doc that you have <laughs> and you print out and you give to the speakers? Or, <laughs> or yeah. how do you inform them about norms or like work with them to create norms that makes everyone comfortable that's a great question a couple of methods i do have a standard email i mm-hmm. copy and paste and change the names yeah, for, yeah. like i think most people do <laughs> right. who do reg- repeated work um that tries to say here's the kind of conversation we're looking for and i update mm-hmm. it almost every time because you know panelists might repeat my words back to me but improve it and make it more right. efficient or yeah. beautiful um, you know, I say something like we're looking for an organic conversation, mm-hmm. uh, not a stilted, uh, you know, lecture Q&A method or, yeah. or structure. Um, so I have a standard email. We have a conference call where we uh, I, I try to describe what the best thing can drink looks like to them. Mm-hmm. And then I give them some tips and tricks to avoid certain pitfalls. And I always mentioned, don't make this a lecture. Yeah, it's so important. Yeah. Um, so those kind of soft reinforcements, I don't give them like rules or anything, mm-hmm. but I try to let them know what we're imagining as the best version of what we're doing. Right. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, that totally makes sense. And setting up expectations so they don't get bogged down by not knowing what's going to happen when they get into the room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and at other events similar to ours, not at one of our Think and Drinks, but uh, I've seen panel conversations where a panelist will kind of run out of things to say mm-hmm. and then throw it to the audience early. Mm-hmm. So like in an hour and a half an event, they only did like 25 minutes of discussion and then like an hour, over an hour of audience Q&A. Oh. And that's torture. That's a lot. That's yeah. too much. That's too much. Because, like, there are a few people in your audience who are there to participate. They're there to ask their question and will be d- disappointed if they don't. Mm-hmm. But for a lot of people, they need more of a balance of, I'm here to hear these experts, and the questions are meant to elicit things from the experts. Right. And if that balance gets off, it, man, it drags <laughs> on. Cause you, I'm sure. Like, the... the panels have to set the tone and the information and, right. and everything so uh, if that gets out of whack and that's just a simple decision that people don't think a lot about of yeah. how much Q&A versus discussion when do you start the Q&A right. but it will totally make or break an event in my opinion yeah that sounds torturous yeah it becomes like a one of those town meeting exactly. town hall meetings or exactly. something where just a bunch of people say whatever they want. Yeah, you need enough structure. Yeah. A freewheeling com- you can't have a freewheeling conversation with 50 to 100 people. No. You, there has to be some structure. And yeah. I, mean, I think a lot of what I learned came from teaching of managing a large classroom mm-hmm. around discussion. Um, no one wants to just hear random thoughts from random people in a series. You want it yes. to lead somewhere, right? <laughs> right? You want a structure where you start with everyone on the same page with the same information mm-hmm. with the relevant questions highlighted, uh, some depth and analysis that goes in, and then you open it up for questions for whatever we missed. So yeah. that leads to some illumination and not just yeah. time to talk to 100 people in the room. Like, right. Here's your chance uh, right. with the microphone. It's got to be productive. Yeah, especially because I'm sure you always want to wrap it up. You want to wrap up the loose ties. Yeah. And you want to kind of do a callback to what you started. So have a thesis statement that you come back to and you're like, oh, did we hit this? Did we not? Right. And have the audience maybe participate in that portion. But, um, yeah, if you don't have a way that everyone's going at once, then there's no way to wrap up. Right. Because then you're so scattered. Exactly. It almost has to have a kind of narrative to the event that culminates. And if you don't, it can just feel like it peters out or what did I come to this event for again? (laughs) You might ask yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's important. Yeah. That's interesting. The idea of having a panel discussion that is somehow, that is also connected to human storytelling. Yes. Even... Even if you're talking about fake news, I mean, that obviously connects to human storytelling. But having three different people talking as experts mm-hmm. and having it be a linear story yeah. is hard. It is, yeah. It's more complicated than it sounds when I say it like that, but it sounds difficult. That's why we depend on our moderators so much. Mm-hmm. I mean, being able to start with a loose structure and then in the moment tweak things and ask the right questions so that it leads to these moments of revelation. Right. Really important. Yeah. Uh, it's more than just asking a question and just sitting back and letting them talk. 
Right. Ideally, there'd be a natural chemistry <laughs> that would lead into a beautiful conversation, but that's yeah. often not what happens because it's the first time they're meeting each other. Right. It's first and only time this event is taking place. Yeah. Um, so it really takes someone's skill at guiding a conversation. Yeah. Do you have, um, like, when you have new people who haven't been on a Think and Drink panel before, do you encourage them to go to a Think and Drink before they do their own? Yeah, I, I do. I mean, it's often difficult because if it's, like, the first event in Spokane for the season, oh, the last sure. one was, like, six months ago. Yeah. Um, but we do have videos of our Think and Drinks online, and oh. I include links to those. Like, oh, here's a great one. Here's what went well. Um and that can kind of set the tone. Yeah. Mostly, I just don't want them coming in feeling too structured. I want them coming in ready to mm -hmm. have fun and chat like yeah. they would with other knowledgeable folks. Right. Because this is a rare opportunity for them to cut loose. There's no strict academic norms. Their, you know, right. their tenure doesn't depend on this. This is just <laughs> like you're around a couple other smart people who are interested in the same stuff as you. Right. And like a hundred audience members who came here on a Tuesday night because they care about this too. Yeah. Let's like dig in and actually enjoy this and see yeah. what happens. So getting them in that state of mind uh, takes some uh, pre-discussion. Yeah, I bet. So they meet at the event. You don't have like dinner. <laughs> Sometimes. Before, okay. Sometimes we're able to, but... The difficulties in getting three academic schedules to align mm -hmm. for the event itself is right. yeah. sometimes a miracle. <laughs> yeah. The pre-phone call, the conference call, is in itself <laughs> so <laughs> takes up so much time. Yeah. Uh, with that doodle poll with like fifty options <laughs> and they still don't line up. Yeah. Uh, it can be difficult to do any other sorts yeah. of additional things, but we we have had dinners and other sorts of things ahead of time. Yeah. We often do a quick quick check in before the event starts to get right. everyone at least to have met each other. But, right? Yeah. Surprise! Right. <laughs> <laughs> We're bringing out this person. Yeah. Um, do you have? Do those think and drink events have regulars? Are there people that you see at every single one? Yeah, there yeah. are. There are. Yeah. Um, and they'll often kind of come up to you and introduce themselves as a fixture of the think and drink. They'll say, I've been to each one and, oh. and you know, and they'll say hi next time. And yeah, yeah, we, we definitely get regular folks, especially at our events outside of Seattle. Oh, um, Seattle, awesome. we get a nice churning of Seattle of different people at different events. Mm -hmm. Um, but for Spokane, Tri-Cities, Yakima. Yeah. I saw a lot of familiar faces each time I went. Which was kind of cool. That is really cool. Yeah. It means what you're doing is working. I think so. I hope yeah. so. <laughs> it's it's cool to see cool to see people happy enough with it that they want to come back. Totally. Uh, and we've had this this series we've been doing this fall is called uh, Moment of Truth, Journalism and Democracy in the Age of Misinformation. So really lively, important topic, especially around the election. Mm -hmm. um, and we've had like record turnouts for every venue we've had. Oh, that's awesome. Previous years. It's been cool. It's yeah. been like really exciting to see people come out to an event on a weeknight mm -hmm. to talk about big ideas around truth and journalism and our society. And yeah. that, that makes me optimistic in a way that I maybe wasn't before <laughs> uh, about, about our society and its direction yeah. to see people this passionate about it. Totally. Um, so that's been really cool. That's awesome. About um, like subjects for the think and drinks. Do you, I mean, you talked before about you don't want them 
it wouldn't help a com- like build a community if you, Dustin, just sat in a room right. coming up with topics. Right. How do you do that? Do people send them in? Do they suggest them when you're at Think and Drinks with them? Or Yeah, we do get suggestions. Mm-hmm. We're happy to hear suggestions both in person and through email. Mm-hmm. Um, this series was grant-funded by a national... Uh, grant from the Pulitzer Prizes and the Mellon Foundation. Mm-hmm. So every, almost every state humanities council is doing something around democracy and information and our citizenry. Mm-hmm. Uh, our particular take was misinformation, journalism, that sort of thing. Okay. Um, so, but this was a kind of unique situation. Often these are put together. Our themes are put together in house. We. Um, take the idea, we, or we start with an idea or a list of ideas, and then kind of check out what else is happening culturally or politically. Uh, we have lots of, um, I think of them as like friend organizations, partners we regularly work with, who mm-hmm. we talk with, uh, community members often weigh in. So yeah. we get a lot of input, and I think our job is to take that input and really edit it down. Yeah. Because you have a big theme like journalism and democracy. Right. And that's too big. And so then you could have a, well, we should have an event on misinformation. And that's too big. Like you still Mm -hmm. need it. Like maybe the (laughs) title is something about misinformation, but you still got to figure out those core questions you're going to focus on. Yeah. Because otherwise it's just too broad and it'll be such an introductory event. No one will feel like they they learned anything. Yeah. Um, So I think our job is taking those big questions and finding a specific angle that people all across our state can be invested in. Yeah. Which Washington in particular is really divided by our mountains politically mm-hmm. uh, and culturally. On the West, we have these this rainforests full of liberals. <laughs> and on the East <laughs> side, we have um, drier communities, flatter, and they tend to lean, lean more conservative. Yeah. And so to frame a question in a way that doesn't piss either side off but invites them to mm-hmm. come talk with us and our experts is tricky. But I think maybe the most important part of what we do, since we're not an advocacy organization, we're just right. trying to start conversations. Start conversations. Yeah, especially in a time when um, people are so polarized right. in their views right. and also a lot of times isolated um, geographically, yeah. or they're isolated in idea thoughts and ideas. Yes. Like being in a city, I feel like we are in a weird liberal bubble. Yeah, where most people I talk to, I know, didn't vote for Trump. Exactly. You know, so which is not the case when you go to Tri Cities right. or Yakima or something like that. Right. Uh, which makes those conversations really rich. Yeah. Um, you know, we had we had an event on journalism kind of the state of journalism, how is journalism doing? Hmm. We had the editor from the Yakima Herald. We had a couple other um, uh, really cool journalists and journalists uh, slash professors. And we had challenging questions from the audience. Like, you know, we want to trust you, but we don't. Hmm. So what are you going to do about that? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, you know, we also had some people seemingly who believed certain conspiracy theories that we discussed that night who kind yeah. of raised their hand to defend them. Hmm. And that's cool to me. Yeah. Like yeah. that's a really interesting, not because I want the conspiracy theory amplified, but that they felt secure enough to come to our event, raise it in a mm-hmm. group in, in a room full of 70 people or whatever. Um, is interesting and that no yeah. one shouted them down and they got their time and people responded to it, but no one got angry. Yeah. 
that to me is really is a successful event and kind of a unique one in our time, as, yeah, you, as you mentioned. Totally, and how, I mean, that's really beautiful that everyone got to say their piece. Right, exactly. Even if, even if someone's beliefs are touted as a conspiracy yeah, theory. Right, right, even if I totally <laughs> don't agree. If you don't agree and wrong, don't believe them. It's, you know, there's the content of what you're saying, and then there's the manner in which the discussion is held. Mm-hmm. And I, our biggest job, to me, at Humanities Washington, um, are providing spaces for these discussions that allow things to get worked out, or discovered, or at least yeah. said. Um, that being said, there's side constraints. There are things that are morally abhorrent that we're not going to provide. Yeah. I'm not going to provide space for. Right. Um, but uh, on the whole, I, I want these things to be discussed, and I want a bunch mm-hmm. of different people to come discuss them. Mm-hmm. So this is going to be... Okay. Of the people who come to the events, yeah. what percentage leave with a changed mind or a changed attitude? It's a good question. We, we ask this sort of question on our audience surveys. Sure. And we get solid responses that, uh, I think rephrase it, we ask, um, I, I've thought about this in a new way. Mm-hmm. Um, and the majority of people, we get high averages. People say they think about things in a new way after. Yeah. Which is, I think, our most important metric. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think we do a pretty good job of that. I, I would, uh, we're always looking for ways to do a better job, like I think any organization would be who, who's trying to produce public conversations. Because mm-hmm. um, that's the hardest part is to give people enough of what they already know that they feel like informed and we're addressing the questions they want to address while then going far enough in a new direction that they, you know, kind of go, huh, okay. And this is, this is not how I thought about this. Yeah. Um, so that's a challenge, but I think, I think when we're doing a solid job of, yeah. How far after an event do you survey people? Uh, we survey people in the room. We have, uh, paper surveys that we, that are in our programs that we hand out. Gotcha. We have our little pins that we hand out and then collect them. And yeah. Because even though that's great that people in the room are saying, yes, I'm changed, I'd be interested if you like came back to them a month later yeah, yeah. and said, did it stick? Right. Yeah. <laughs> I think that would be really cool, like a longitudinal study of mm-hmm. yeah, people's views. Uh, it sounds like a great research project, and I welcome yeah. anyone who'd like, who would like to give me funding <laughs> to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I I'm interested because it seems like um, the energy in those rooms from not having gone, but the way you're describing it, yeah, is um, extremely positive. And so, like these people are on like a high of positive feelings and ideas, and like probably really inspired by hmm. what they experience. Yeah, and so that's why I'm wondering, like, if they if it stays the same or if it. Like oh, yeah. dips a little, or I mean, I'm sure like any sort of the of those big moments, right? When you finish a book and you feel like this just unlocks something yes, for me, yeah. and that lasts a while. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that sort of participation discussion high is going to stick with you forever. But right. I do think it can kind of get in your belief DNA and tweak things. Totally. Um, 
And this is why I mentioned earlier, kind of resisting the idea that a change in mind should be the criterion for a successful event or conversation, Mm -hmm. because it's not how often does your mind get changed by a single conversation or book or something? That's not how it works. Right. It's a process where you collect data points that slowly shift your arc Mm -hmm. or you talk to enough people or you live in a certain city for long enough and it shifts you and you don't even realize it while it's happening. So even if you right. were changing your mind, you wouldn't know until five years later. Like, oh my god, what right. was I thinking? <laughs> you like look at a Facebook, like on Facebook, it shows you oh your memories. Gosh. Like, what yeah. was I saying? <laughs> what What is wrong with me? Um, I think our events are part of the arc that mm-hmm. change, and I don't know that those sorts of changes are noticeable in the short term. But I think the absence of events like this. Uh, the absence of these sorts of public conversations where people are meeting each other and talking about the hard questions, I think our society would look very different without them and it'd be really unfortunate Mm -hmm. without them. Mm -hmm. So our event is part of this ecosystem. It's part of our chain, long chains of events that I think make people better knowers and better thinkers and discussers and make them more critical. So if we're, aimed at that, that sort of long-term change, that seems great to me. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be very benefited by a long-term study of, of people's habits and thoughts. And right. Things, but. Yeah. I love that thought that you are, you're giving people tools to go and continue to think critically about what they read on the news or right. they um, like then are encouraged to have conversations outside of the public like that public room exactly they're encouraged to go like talk to another person about what they learned and spread that knowledge and the feeling of what it was like being in that conversation and the ideas touched on there so it's it's i love the idea that what you're talking about the arc yeah because it also spreads out from those people who were in that room at that moment. Right. Other, like, the people that were there can go and spread that information and spread that, the idea of critical thinking or that, also that these events are valuable. Mm-hmm. Like, the people who want to do their own think and drinks. Right. You're like, go for it. Yeah. Yes, that's what we want. Exactly. So, yeah. I, yeah. I prefer a world where everyone's hosting a think and drink. That's right. very well attended. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I... Uh, this might be overly dramatic, but I think the difference between a dystopian society and one that maybe not utopian, but not dystopian (laughs) are these humanity skills. Mm -hmm. I think it's critical thinking, being able to speak to one another, writing, Mm -hmm. um, uh, presenting your view in a sort of coherent, cohesive way and asking these questions of meaning and Mm -hmm. taking on those questions philosophically, politically, through literature, through history I think that's the way those questions are raised, how they're best dealt with. And the, the skills of the mind that the humanities offer are the essential ones. And, you know, if you're worried about the direction of a country, it's probably not because there's too much critical thinking or there's <laughs> right. too many people reading novels or le- learning about history. Right. Those things seem to be the bulwarks against all the problems we're worried about, mm-hmm. uh, especially ones of polarization. Right. Um, so, yeah, I, I take what we do really seriously. And whether our events are successful or not, 
I think there are high stakes, mm-hmm. both for the arts and the humanities. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I, we, we treat our think and drinks, even though they're kind of, you know, the, the name implies a certain flippancy about drinking right. and stuff. But I take them seriously. I think these are um, really... I think there are parts of our communities that without them will be uh, in deep trouble having these sorts of conversations together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the, I mean, the name Think and Drink, like you were talking about before, it sets the norm right. for the room. Right. Especially for the audience who is like, oh, I've never been to one of these before. I don't know what to expect. Yeah. It's casual. It's fun. It's exactly. not like we're talking about serious things, but. Where you're going to have fun. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, we, we don't want people to think they have to have read everything about the topic mm-hmm. or they have to be an academic or anything like that. We want everyone to come in. We'll get you on the same page early yeah. early on and we'll have a chat. And that's what yeah. we want. We don't want we don't want anyone putting on airs. So the event itself is not going to put on airs. Yeah. That would be, I mean, that's a bummer when people put on airs when you're trying to be authentic people. Exactly. <laughs> that really limits what what you can say, how you say it, and Which, what you talk about. When people talk about the ivory tower of academia, that's a yeah. large part of what they mean, is mm-hmm. it can be difficult and intimidating to engage experts about their topic of expertise. Right. And we want, we want to erase that divide yeah. as best we can. Yeah, more Bill Nye. Yes, more. all right. <laughs> <laughs> um, with that, what is your... So Humanities Washington does more programming than just the two you manage. Yes. Of the other programs, uh, what's your favorite that you don't have to take care of? Oh, great. So Humanities Washington has uh, something like five programs. Some Mm -hmm. kind of bleed into each other. We have Speakers Bureau, Think and Drink. We have the Center for Washington Cultural Traditions, uh, which is sort of about folk stories and skills and collecting them and making sure they're not lost mm-hmm. that is a uh, co-run with the uh, with arts washington um we also have primetime family reading which is a really cool program that uh, focuses on um, elementary school kids mm-hmm. and gets them and their parents together one night a week for six weeks they read a book they have a cool conversation around the book they're served dinner uh, they're at the library. They get a library card. It's like a really cool, that impactful. So fun. It's amazing. Yeah. Uh, we were we had an event um, in Spokane a couple weeks ago. One of our uh, we had our big fundraiser, mm-hmm. and this this woman who works at a school that hosted primetime family reading, she told this story about how you know a huge percentage of their students are homeless. A huge percentage of their students, I think she said fifty percent or maybe more are on free lunch or reduced lunch mm-hmm. programs. And we got primetime family reading uh, in there, and the effects on these kids were amazing. Like they were spent, they were going around to their friends the next day, bragging about <laughs> they got they got to spend an hour with their mom with her reading to them, like they would be bragging about getting yeah. tickets to go to a, like oh a gosh. football game or something. Like they're bragging cheerfully. Um, so there was. There weren't many dry eyes in the room at that point. It yeah. was really cool. <laughs> so that's a really special program of ours. Um, we also host the Washington State Poet Laureate, mm. uh, Claudia Castro Luna, who's really cool, uh, amazing poet who travels all across the state, just like our Speakers Bureau. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also have a grants program. But, uh, I, I mean, it's hard to beat 
improving literacy with kids. <laughs> the right. Yeah, that's reading. pretty so good. So that's, yeah. <laughs> that's a really cool program yeah. um, that we're all really proud of. Yeah, I love that they get – it's a family thing, that they get the parents and the kids involved. That's the best part. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're all hanging out. They're eating pizza or whatever, and yeah. they're talking about a book. So. That sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. It's like uh, that thing from Arthur when he says, having fun isn't hard when you got a library card. Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly what they say at every fr- prime time. That's how they start. Yes, they yeah. shout it as a chant together. That sounds great. I should go to that. Yeah, you yeah, should. I think that's for me. <laughs> um, so we talked about a lot of things that you really like about your job. Mm-hmm. What's the thing you don't like about your job? Oh, boy. Let's see. I mean, the favorite part of the job is producing these fun conversations, picking the themes, finding the experts. Mm -hmm. I think it's my least favorite part is the least favorite part of any job, which is like that takes a ton of administrative work on the other end, right? You got to reconcile expenses. You got to make a doodle poll. You got (laughs) to respond to calendar invites, all that stuff. That to me is sort of dreary, drudging work that is literally a part of every single job I've ever had, yeah. including teaching, including researching, whatever. Right. Um, so yeah, I, I try to be as creative as possible in minimizing that part of my job, mm-hmm. um, both from a ethical standpoint of minimizing overhead for the um, funding we receive, but also as a personal like thing, I want to be doing the fun stuff of right. having cool <laughs> conversations. Yeah. So yeah, I would say, and maybe that's the least creative answer in the world, but that that's is such totally a, fine. yeah. yeah. <laughs> if I, if I could never create another doodle poll, yeah. if I could delete Outlook, <laughs> I think I'd be pretty, I'd be set. Nice. Well, I think there's something to be said, like you're doing, you're doing really elevated work, mm. but your day to day can still be a slog. Yeah. You know, right. like it's really like beautiful, like life changing work. And then you still have to. You still have to do it. I mean, use Outlook. Exactly. I hate Outlook. Exactly. <laughs> Which is, I mean, it's true. Like, this is a more of a no narrow thing conversation, maybe. But yeah. like any dream you pick, it comes with all this baggage of the yeah. crap you don't want to have to do. Yeah. Um, and you ha- just have to pick the thing that makes that other stuff worth it. Or like, right. okay, well, this is all feeding in. Yeah. To bringing this really cool community event to a town that hasn't had one in years. Right. Like, okay, I can, I'll create one more doodle poll and set all the <laughs> options one more time yeah. and that's fine. Yeah. Uh, it, it can, it makes it worth it in the end, but yeah, boy, I hope we get some better, like, uh, business technology in the future. In the future. Yeah. <laughs> um, well with that, I, I have one last question about your day to day, slog do you have to do you have to write grants for these two programs is that does that fall under your uh not so much we have a grant writer okay um yeah but we typically sort of feed information into them sure and kind of answer their questions and they put it together in a really coherent uh nice format for us yeah. Um, we did We did get a grant for the philosophy podcast that Whitney and I did mm-hmm. um, on our own, so that was some grant writing, right. um, but not typically for Humanities Washington. That's nice. That that's. I mean, it sounds like you, from your description of your own job, you have a lot of things 
happening. We have a lot going on. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes, so we do. it would be, I think, difficult to also have to write grants. Yes. For that. Because I mean, it's yeah. time consuming. It's extremely time consuming. Yeah. Right? Um, and I even forgot one of our programs, <laughs> too. And it's one oh, okay. I directly run, too. It's a museum on Main Street. It's a traveling exhibit from the Smithsonian. It's really cool. Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, those sorts of things that we actually... What made me think of that is we take applications for sites to host those events. Oh, And the I work see. that goes into even those sorts of applications, which is kind of a grant of an exhibit, yeah. sort of. Yeah, yeah. Um, is substantial and like to see people put in that much work to mm-hmm. get this thing to happen is really impressive and meaningful. Yeah. But, but that doesn't make it feel any better when you're putting in, you know, dozens of hours into writing a thing to, right. in the hopes that something might happen. Right. Feels like applying to jobs, which is a nightmare. It's in itself. also not fun. Yeah. yeah. So with the grants that come into Humanities Washington, is there a panel? Are you like are you as a program manager one of the people who decides that or like reads yeah. the grants? It depends. Where the person who uh, runs our Center for Washington Cultural Traditions also runs our grants program, mm. uh, and she does a great job both of reviewing them directly, but also bringing in panels mm-hmm. of people to evaluate grant uh, proposals. Um, some of them come from our. Um, board of trustees, but many of them are community members or parts of other organizations who kind of have a stake in what's happening. Cool. Um, so we try to be as expansive as possible. We have pretty large committees for almost anything we do. I think something like 30 to 40 people were evaluating our first round of speakers bureau applications. Um, oh, wow. So it's That's we, a lot. Yeah, we bring in a yeah. ton of voices because we recognize as a Seattle based organization, we're supposed to be talking and providing programming for the entire state. So we tried yeah. to um, make sure voices are represented at every stage of the process. Mm-hmm. Does Humanities Washington have like an equity framework in your strategic plan or in your... Yeah, we're building it right now. Okay, um, cool. We're doing some diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion um, work at the moment as we're doing our strategic planning at the moment. So it's all okay. been wrapped up and together. Yeah. Um, there have certainly been commitments to equity and that sort of thing, but th- this is a pretty um, step-by-step rigorous process for really building that more into our work. Totally. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm wondering because in talking to you about the programs you run, yeah. obviously you are looking at it with the DEI perspective. Right. So I was wondering if that was a whole organizational thing or if that is something that you personally find value in and have decided to do that in your programming. Yeah, it's kind of both. I I think one of the reasons I was hired had to do with my philosophical research on on implicit bias, which Mm -hmm. connects to my other sort of philosophical psychological research. Um, And we try to bring that into every stage, making sure... Because we're having to check for lots of kinds of biases, both Mm -hmm. racial, gender, and political, but also cultural, um, Mm -hmm. especially because of that East-West Washington divide that's, you know, maybe more myth than reality, I don't know, but um, making sure that we're not just asking questions that Seattleites are interested in, but people from Spokane and Yakima and, and, and all sorts of places. So I most of the conversations we have in office when there's a real open question are about that. Like, are we just being Seattleites right now? Mm-hmm. Um, my colleague Hannah does a really good job actually of asking that question. Yeah. Um, so we, 
we're very conscious of it and we're building that more into our strategic planning and thinking how we can sort of procedurally uh, reduce and accommodate uh, biases yeah. um, in all sorts of manners. Amazing. Yeah. Um, okay, last question. Yeah. What is your dissertation on? <laughs> oh, <God>. <laughs> as short <laughs> as possible. My, my dissertation is on the way that biases afflict our most important judgments. So not, uh, we have judgments that are kind of day-to-day, person to person, they may be explicit in the sense of, you know, I might know I have a certain bias against you just because of who you are, or what you look like <laughs> or whatever. Um, but I might also have implicit biases that I don't, I'm not even aware of. I might think I'm a, I'm not racist. I'm not sexist, mm-hmm. but still hold attitudes and associations that are racist and sexist and influence my behavior, even though I'm unaware of them. Um, I'm looking at those kinds of biases, those unconscious biases and how they affect things like our ethical judgments, our judgments about like evidence and beliefs. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's interesting research that shows that even the way that a question is framed, uh, the wording chosen can really affect your moral perspective on the answer to that question, mm-hmm. which is scary because we think we have these really deep commitments uh, that are just part of who we are, but yeah. some of this research seems to show it can totally flip on the basis of a, uh, using the word you instead of he or she or they, Ooh. which is terrifying. That is scary. So my research <laughs> is on that, is how seriously should we take that concern? Yeah. Yeah. That really connects with everything we just talked about. Yeah, hopefully yeah. it's a natural fit. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they seem connected in my brain and have, a, have produced a pretty cool uh, series of things I've got to do. Yeah. So. Awesome. Do you have any closing thoughts or anything we didn't hit on? I don't think so. Uh, Check out uh, humanities.org for all of our cool events all across Washington. Um, You can check out No Narrow Thing if you want, but Mm -hmm. that's not, that is wholly different from Humanities (laughs) Washington. (laughs) Not affiliated. Not affiliated. That's right. That's right. Well, cool. Thank you so much, Dustin. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Safe travels. Thank you. Spokane tomorrow. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah. The Sharpest Knives podcast is created, edited, and produced by me, Maris Antolin, and partially supported by the Seattle Office of Arts and Culture. We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash sharpestknivespodcast, or find us on Instagram at sharpestknivespodcast. And you can follow along and support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash sharpestknivespodcast. I'd love to hear your thoughts and comments and your questions and suggestions for future guests. Email us at sharpestknivespodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.